0: This show is about your mental health. While it's supported by the pillars of positivity and hope, if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out for help. In many communities in both the United States and Canada, you can dial 211 to be connected to mental health and crisis services in your region. While it may seem like it at times, you are not alone. Uh, hello and welcome to the first episode of The Happy Molecule. I hope this is the uh, beginning of a journey that we are going to be taking together to better mental health. For me as well. I still live with depression. I, I guess I always will. And sometimes I don't always do the right things. So we're going to work at this together. I'm going to be offering you the best advice that I can find and good advice and offer you positivity and hope. We know what the problem is. I mean, we, we have all these stats, which are becoming staggering. It's being called the echo pandemic because it's the pandemic that comes after the pandemic. And this may be worse than COVID-19. The latest stats are one in five Canadians will experience a mental health situation sometime in their life. I think that number is low. In the years that I've studied mental health, I think a lot of it goes unreported. A lot of people get frustrated, give up, don't report it, don't do anything about it. So I think that number is low. Then let's put in the number of people who live with someone who lives with depression and anxiety And that number is high as well. And this show is for you as well. This show is for everybody. This show is for people who live with depression, like me. Trying to give you the best advice. Trying to help you out. It's for people who live with someone who lives with depression. Again, trying to give you good advice. Trying to help you out. Trying to help you take a breath. Stop and take a breath. And it's also for people who don't think they live with depression who don't have depression and i'll tell you why it's probably more important that you listen to this show and that is because we need to take care of our mental health we need to learn how to recognize our feelings and recognize stress and anxiety and we have to learn how to deal with it so here we go let's go with our very first show my very first guest is a uh Practicing clinical psychologist, actually, he's, he's been a clinical psychologist for more than 40 years. He lives just uh, outside of Manhattan, and that's where I spoke with him. His name is Dr. Joseph Luciani as well. He is a, an author of several books, mainly about self-coaching. But there's one book in particular that caught my attention, and that was a book called Unlearning. Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. You see, it's the contention of, of of Dr. Luciani that depression, whatever its cause, may actually trigger in us bad habits in how we recognize and deal with depression, habits that make it much worse. Dr. Joseph Luciani, um, you have such an an incredibly interesting theory, one that I presume you get a lot of pushback from, and that is about anxieties and depression that one of our big stumbling blocks is that we have learned bad habits and you've written a book in which you say we need to unlearn these habits in order to get
1: better absolutely and you're right i i get a lot of startled looks when when i mention the heretical notion that anxiety and depression are in fact habits habits of insecurity so we'll get into it i'm sure in our discussion but essentially what happens is that insecurity is part of the human condition we are vulnerable creatures we enter this world without wings or claws to protect ourselves but we do have our mind and when a child growing up especially in adverse situations an alcoholic parent uh, neglect etc that child has to cope. And how does the child do that? Well, we start to rely on coping strategies. And oftentimes these strategies produce a certain amount of stress. So what I am saying is that if we look at the developmental accumulation of stress in our lives, that stress has a depleting effect on our psyche, both chemically, emotionally, and over time, over the years, the attempt to over control life in an attempt to feel safe leaves us in a state where we're actually reinforcing a habit of anxiety or depression which in themselves are strategies of protection now that sounds even more outlandish i'm sure to call anxiety or depression habits that are somewhat to protect us now i'm i know I'm, i'm probably going off the rails when people hear this but but I feel that the homeostatic aspect of all of what we are—we don't—it's like Einstein saying God doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, I feel the same way with protective mechanisms within the body. We we have uh, all these these kind of genetically inclined inclinations to protect ourselves from danger when think of a house with a circuit breaker, if we if we start to overload the circuits with more and more and more uh, a radio, an air conditioner, a TV, the circuit starts to heat up. So what happens if we continue to heat up that circuit? Well, at some point, the circuit breaks, and it stops that flow. Now, that would be analogous to a depression. And what depression does is it's it shuts that breaker off from what? Well, from the overload, from the house burning down, from you burning down. Now, I know depression itself can become the problem, but I think essentially depression is more of a withdrawal from the stress of life. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. I pull away. I pull away. It's, it's an awkward and an ineffective way to protect yourself, but nevertheless, instinctually, we're withdrawing from the stress of that depression. Anxiety is just the opposite. In, when the house heats up those those circuits, instead of the breaker uh, breaking, we add a bigger breaker and a bigger breaker, <laughs> and we start getting more of a flow of electricity and more of a flow, until finally, at some point, the panic attack ensues and the house does burn down. So.
0: <laughs> yeah wow this this is so interesting uh it, it is um makes a lot of sense you know and what i'm thinking of right now that it reminds me of is bad eating habits you know as a child our parents may you know to keep us quiet may give us a cookie or if we've if, if we've hurt our knee give us a sucker you know we answer things with food and that becomes learned and and it, it carries on so that when we're feeling that we need comfort, ah, the term comfort food uh, comes in. Do we take any sort of comfort from this protection of ourselves or do we feel we're taking any sort of comfort? Uh,
1: any sort of comfort from, I, I missed so, the last point.
0: Any sort of comfort from from withdrawing from from the bad habits, do they I, yeah. give us any comfort?
1: Yes, the comfort comes from the isolation of depression. Uh, we we are a depressed person has almost a nauseous response to being overstimulated. They just want to shut things down. They want to withdraw, be left alone. I
0: want to I want to sleep.
1: Yeah, I want to go certain, to bed.
0: I want to sleep.
1: Of course, and. And and that's why it's so hard to reach a depressed person, because they're moving in the opposite direction of, say, therapy. And I have a much easier time with anxiety patients as I do with depressed patients. That's one of the reasons why I developed my program of self-coaching. I felt that as a, a traditional therapist, I was too passive. And especially with the depressed person coming in, the energy level... Was just not there for that person, so I felt that I, I really needed to inject some some energy, some some motivation, uh, and that's where the coaching came in. This was back in the '90s, before I ever heard of this coaching phenomenon that's taken over the country and the world. Uh, and you know, I was referring basically to the Newt Rockney kind of coaching. Come on, now you can do this, and and I needed to become that energy, so I became kind of the surrogate energy, and it worked. It got people that were depressed more engaged in the process. You see, because ultimately what I needed to do was to get somebody that was depressed or anxious to take the reins, to take that responsibility. Once, once you leave the therapist's office, that depression or anxiety has a, you know, it may be ameliorated for a, a day or so, but it's gonna come right back unless you're doing something on an ongoing, consistent and persistent basis. The, the other aspect of my book is neuroplasticity. We don't change the neural structure of our brain by one shot deals or by wishful thinking or by learning the truth about why. Isn't that incredible when we think about it for a second, yeah, Kevin? It, 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 the whole analysis, why? And they dig and they dig and they dig. And what happens? You get to the miracle of why and it doesn't change a darn thing. That That's
0: what you're saying is I could be doing all the right things. I could be going to see a psychiatrist, psychologist, a therapist, a counselor. I, they could be doing all the right things, telling me all the right things, investigating all the right things. But there's still that block inside of me that is stopping that therapy from actually taking exactly. effect. And so we're now we get to the title of your book, Unlearning. So before you're going to allow therapy to work, or before therapy is going to be able to take hold, you gotta unlearn these habits that we have. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you you nailed it. Thank that you. That's no, that <laughs> that exactly what I'm trying to say. That is fascinating uh, exactly because it.
0: we could simply, we could really be wasting our time and our money if if
1: we're, <laughs> we're just- I, I, I have to interrupt. <laughs> I, I, in, in the book, I talk about my first analyst, and it's, an, it's, it's a useful anecdote right now. And I was enthralled. This was back in the 70s. I was enthralled with the, the gold standard, which was Freudian analysis. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm not offending any Freudians, but <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but but uh, nevertheless, so I, he wanted me to come for therapy for 10 times a week, and I could only afford one with insurance. Uh, thank God my wife was a teacher and had great insurance. But nevertheless, uh, I, I stayed with him for a good while, and he never said anything. He just said, well, how do you feel about mm. that? And this went on and on and on. One time I had a dream. There was a bug on the back of my leg behind my knee. And, and he looked at me and he took a few more notes. And he says, ah, so you want to be intimate with your mother? I said, oh. really? <laughs> you know? Okay, so you kind of get an idea of him. But anyway, I went off to school in California, graduate school. He said, don't go you're not going to survive. He says, your anxiety is not going to allow you to last six months. Um, I was so determined that I went with that time bomb. I went with the knowledge that my therapist, my guru, my God was telling me, I couldn't. And that hung over my head. And I'll tell you, it, it almost ruined me, but I went because something in me had to do it. Six months later, I got a letter from him and he said, my analyst his analyst told him he had to write to me and tell him about the counter transference he felt for me and didn't want me to leave him wow so, so i you know i always say if i ever ran into him in the street you know it's a jersey thing i know but <laughs> <laughs> do you f- i don't know how we got down i'm sorry for <laughs> no, this that's going that, off that
0: now. is fine um, I, and i want to get back to the unlearning but you've got me going down another another rabbit <laughs> hole here as well do you think that maybe One of the big problems we have, you know, no, I'm going to put out this statement and you can agree or disagree. I think one of the big problems with mental health research is that we don't listen. We don't listen to new ideas. And we still think that ideas that came from Freud and whoever else at that time still hold complete water in today's modern society, that we don't say, OK, wait a minute. That was OK. But what if, you know, for instance, in your case, what if these are learned habits? Let's discuss it instead of poo-pooing it right away.
1: Well, let me even take it a step further. Uh, cigarette smoker. Do you think it's necessary for the cigarette smoker to know why they took that first cigarette? Of course not. No. What we need to know is that we are the the aggregate of everything perhaps, that has Perhaps preceded- he had
0: the cigarette after after sleeping with his mother,
1: but I don't know. Okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, we we are the aggregate of everything that has preceded us. It is apparent in the moment. So The you that you're looking at, and I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and that, what we're seeing is the whole life of that person encapsulated in this moment, the good, the bad, the ugly. So when we address anxiety or depression in a retrograde way by trying to go back in history, the cigarette smoker, it's just superfluous. It's not necessary. The habit exists right in front of us. Well, what are we doing with the habit? Cigarette smoker. What are you going to do about your smoking? What are we doing that sustains anxiety and depression moment to moment? That's my contention. And, and I really think it's, it's necessary to understand from a cognitive standpoint that we, we are either reinforcing those neural pathways in our brain or we are ignoring them, minimizing them, and we are letting them fall into disuse and therefore not affecting us. So habits are learned, all habits, and all habits can be broken. And if, if and I'll throw this out for any person that has a struggle with it, if anxiety and depression are in fact habits, then that puts you in the driver's seat. You know, when you, when you say I have a mental illness, I, I don't use that term illness. But when you say you have a mental illness, what's an illness? It's something you catch. You step on a rusty nail, you get tetanus. You know, it's something that invades your body. That's too passive. I use the word habit because habit puts you in the driver's seat. What the heck are you going to do about your habit? Well, hey, if you can, if you, here's the, here's the program do ABCD. You're either going to, or you're not, but you know what? You don't have to be a victim. You're either in the backseat or you're behind the wheel. Which do you prefer?
0: I get excited when I hear anybody talk about becoming your own mental health advocate, taking control. It gives me hope, you know, and and I think that that is the opposite of depression is hope Mm -hmm. and anything that can give me hope. If I can feel when you said you're in the driver's seat, that is so important. We don't hear that enough. We don't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Being in the driver's seat is critical. Knowing how to turn the wheel and use the brake is the next step. And of course, just being behind the wheel isn't enough. So we do need to know what we are doing. And like any habit, anxiety and depression, you're either feeding it or you're starving it. It's that simple. And that's why with unlearning anxiety and depression, I'm, I'm trying to put forward a path for helping someone understand what they do inadvertently. Let's face it, we're not sitting around deciding to be neurotic. Uh, we, We really become creatures of our own habituated thinking. And if that thinking has been distorted, then, of course, we then are reflecting those distortions in our everyday thoughts, which reinforce and make this habit loop even stronger and stronger and stronger. All right,
0: hang on, folks. We are going to get into learning how to unlearn talking with uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph Luciani, who is speaking to us from uh, his home just outside of Manhattan, Uh, practicing clinical psychologist for more than 40 years, best-selling author. Uh, His book's available on Amazon. The one I'm talking about is Unlearning, Anxiety and Depression in particular. This is fascinating and I think a good time to bring in the me three. So, me three, I ask my guests, come up with three simple steps people can do to start that process, start that journey to better mental health. Um, and I think this is a good place to bring it in because learning to unlearn, okay, first of all, it it, it, it makes my mind hurt when I hear that, but it's actually a little more simple. Are we overcomplicating things? We, do we overcomplicate it? Yes.
1: Absolutely, uh, that's that's the problem. Uh, I was uh, I had to interrupt once. I, sorry. Uh, I I was when I came out of graduate school. I, I, I was fascinated with Carl Jung. I went to the uh, I wanted to get into the uh, call C G Jung Institute in New York. Required ten years of analysis, which I did. Uh, loved it. Most stimulating, fascinating philosophy in the world. If you've never read Carl Jung, it's it's a trip. Um, but it wasn't doing a thing for me, nor my patients. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, so it, it's, it's very important to understand that the complexity of things doesn't make it better. And oftentimes it's just a sideshow. What makes it better is it's the uh, Arkham's Racer. Find the simplest solution because that's the best solution.
0: The best hamburger has... Pickles and ketchup and mustard, and that's it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get to your first me three, and you say, "Practice being more present." Okay, so we we hear that a lot when we talk about mental health. We we hear about CBT, uh, we hear about meditation. Uh, we, we've all done that little that little thing where you put a raisin in your mouth and you you feel it and you taste it and you 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 be in the moment. When you say it though, in in unlearning. Practicing being more in the present. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, essentially, uh, throughout the book, I'm talking about emotional struggle and particularly anxiety, depression. Anxiety and depression do not exist essentially in the present. Uh, Anxiety is a projection into the future of things going awry. We worry. We anticipate. The anxiety we feel in the present is a reaction to that. Depression typically has a retrospective view, the guilt, the sadness. So we carry those things into the present. Now, what what I feel when I say be more present is to be more externalized. Um, We tend to look at our thoughts as somewhat separate from us, that we are the victim of our own thoughts. I call that passive mind. With active mind, you need to realize that it is really up to you which thoughts get through that turnstile and which don't. So if I'm sitting in my room right now and I'm looking around and I'm feeling somewhat anxious about an IRS audit that might be coming up in the next 10 years, God forbid. And, uh, and I'm starting to get really upset. Now I've left the present environment. I no longer am part of that present environment, not totally. So, by being present, you are allowing yourself to really be within the confines of the thinking that is appropriate to that moment. Uh, you can't be anxious or depressed if you are totally in that moment. So so I think that being present is really a matter of taking active control over the thoughts that would have it otherwise. Uh, I, I know there's there's an awful lot of mindfulness and being present, and it's 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 a it's a wonderful thrust that that the whole world is getting into and and it really is a much better place to be uh, in terms of especially with anxiety, with all of the trepidation and the 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 dangers that we see right now in our vulnerable world. Uh, but you know what I tell my my patients is that you know when we sit we used to sit down together face to face without remote is that there's nothing bad going on in this moment. You're sitting here, I'm sitting here. Uh, The world that is driving your chaos exists in an abstract form right now in your mind. So we need to move away from the abstractions into the reality. That's our best shot for unlearning anxiety and depression because in that moment, that's where we could confront the thoughts that would have us uh, become more victimized.
0: But that's the problem though, is is how do I bring myself into that moment? Because you're right. You know, I'm, I'm worried worried, period. And, and it it's quite often takes me a lot of thinking to try and figure out exactly why at this particular moment I have this depression or this anxiety. Uh, and quite often it's something that's that is small. But the residue is, is always there. What do I do to, I don't know, clean away that residue to, 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 to make myself just say, you know what, that's tomorrow, that was yesterday, this is now?
1: Well, there's a process, and the process begins with separating facts from emotional fictions, um, so the first step, uh, it, it really which, begins which with... by the
0: way, folks, is his number two in the oh, me three. So <laughs> we're gonna get right into that. So you're saying, start separating facts from emotional fictions. What is that? How do we do it?
1: Okay the by separating facts from emotional fictions, what we're doing is we're, we're more or less taking an active stance member, getting behind that wheel. That's, that's the beginning of getting behind that steering wheel. Emotional fictions will rule you if you are anxious or depressed, they will dominate. So we have to ask ourselves, whenever we have, especially a struggle, a doubt, a fear, a negativity, is this a fact, a verifiable fact? As John Adams said, it's facts are stubborn things. Is it verifiable, is it real? Or is it an emotional fiction? Now, typically with doubts, fears, and negativity, uh, most of the time you'll find that the the facts that we are treating as facts are really not facts at all. We just feel they're facts. And feelings aren't necessarily facts. So be very careful when you start treating all your feelings as factual. So scrutinizing the facts from fictions is really the first step. I have a four-step mind mind talk um, program in the book. And the first step is you're not going to go anywhere if you're being confounded and confused by what are facts and what are fictions. So that very first step is the launching pad for everything to follow. When I was
0: a kid, uh, young, I remember distinctly riding in the car, and just before we we would turn onto our street, I didn't want to because I was afraid I was going to see fire trucks there and I was going to see our house on fire. It, there was, we never had a fire. There was no reason for that. It then started getting, it started expanding into when the phone rang, I didn't want to answer it. That if someone sent a letter or a message I just thought, you know, it's like the telegram, right? It, it, it must be bad news.
1: Well, that, that you know, I, I think it's courageous of you to use yourself as an example. And I, I really understand what you're saying is what you were doing as a child is that you were feeling a sense of vulnerability, a loss of control. And what you were trying to do was was to brace and prepare yourself for what, as a child, you were feeling was somewhat inevitable. So you were developing a compulsivity around protecting yourself. We can't blame you for that. Of course not. But nevertheless, see, those are the underpinnings of what evolves. I call it the child reflex. You know, the, the thoughts that contaminate us just like a knee jerk reflex it's that child reflex the these are thoughts and fears that are embedded deep in our psyche whether we ever totally neutralize them some go very deep but most of the thoughts that we have that contaminate us can be neutralized
0: so i need to unlearn that feeling Mm. of coming around the corner
1: and how and the way you do that is through risk let me explain that the end game for my self-coaching program is learning to risk self-trust. Yeah. And, and you Let's know what the end
0: game. people with depression or anxiety do not want to take risks.
1: No, no. But you see, here's why self-trust is the answer. Let's say I'm going to a party and I'm standing outside the door <clears throat> and, and I stand there and I'm saying, gee, I wonder how I'll do if someone asks me the wrong question, am I dressed? Okay. And so I'm doing all of this, this, regurgitation of fears. Um, That's a person without self-trust. They're trying to figure out, just as you did with the phone call, you're trying to figure out how to be safe before the fact. And if you look at most emotional struggle, that's exactly what we're doing. We're not letting life unfold. We're not being present. What we're doing is we're trying to protect ourselves from an anticipated future, which is neurotically tainted. Now, the trusting person, and this is why this is the goal, the trusting person, they, they look at life and they say, gee, you know, I've been to thousands of parties, and I've handled them, I've gotten through them, I've been through thousands of problems in my life, and I've handled it, I've gotten through it. What makes me think I won't handle my next problem? You see, with self-trust, you're willing to risk... You have the resources, that you're an instinctual machine and that you will survive, I should say, instinctual survival machine, and that you're going to survive that next problem. Whether you believe in yourself or not, just look at the data of your history and your history suggests you could take that risk. You could let life unfold blindly, not anticipating and trust that something in you, that instinctual, intuitive something in you will respond in that moment. You, self-trust, it's all about self-trust. Yeah, and I call it a muscle. You have to develop that muscle.
0: Yeah, two words that scare the hell out of me. Risk <laughs> and trust. That's yeah. that's every, yeah. That's a lot.
1: Well, you learning to risk trust is an incremental thing. You, you're right. You're not gonna take a leap off a cliff, but you may take a leap off the curb on a sidewalk. The thing is that you you need to start developing small strategies where you literally force yourself to risk. Now, this is where the coaching comes in again. We set up certain kinds of uh, experiments where, you know, it's maybe, maybe call it the desensitization or exposure. But basically, you have to at some point know what you need to do to heal. Now, if you' if you're going to say oh no, no that's too risky for me well so be it if that's your stance and if that's where you're going to remain then go to a Freudian no, just <laughs> I, I, I hate to
0: I hate to quote that great philosopher Donald Trump but what have you got to lose got, sorry bad example <laughs> I mean I probably just triggered a whole bunch more of anxieties and fears just by using that name right now I mean they're right there. Uh, when we talk about the news of today, whether it's talking about uh, you know uh, uh, American politics or whether it's talking about COVID and isolation, I mean, right there, it is so hard to trust and to take risks.
1: Yeah. Well, but let's be clear: we're not we're not talking about taking unnecessary risks mm-hmm. or okay. or or just chaotic Very risks. Very good point. With COVID, you know, I I have to always try to use myself as an example, because I believe that uh, I'm an optimist. And now, and I should clarify that both optimism and pessimism takes us out of the present, right? Ostensibly, because an optimist says things are going to turn out okay. However, and there's such an important however here, the optimist lives a very different life in the present than a pessimist. So that's why optimism is worth cultivating because it changes your present. It it liberates you. It loosens you up. It relaxes you. So I'm optimistic. I do not feel I'm going to get the virus. Now, maybe I will, but you know what? The optimistic interpretation that I won't frees me to be liberated in my moment,
0: in the present,
1: in the present. So you have nothing to gain or lose. Other than the moment. So I, I choose to value my moments very, very carefully. <laughs> and uh, I guess it would yeah. be like someone looking at Bermuda
0: shorts and they're on their way to a party and they're saying, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I should put that on. Oh, people are going to think I'm I'm strange. Uh, so, you know, the person who, who hasn't unlearned, you know, would say, no, I'm not going to do that. But the person who's willing to take risks and trust just throws them on anyway, goes in there and, and everyone will just think, oh, they're fun. And that's, <laughs> that's as bad as it gets. Whereas if the pessimist or the person who hadn't unlearned yet did go ahead and wear them, they would just stand there and stand out and people would yeah. make them feel the, bad.
1: The, the overthinking person, mm-hmm. and this is what gets us into trouble with anxiety and depression, the overthinking person is never satisfied that they could control life. It's almost a perfectionistic striving, you know, and perfectionists don't want to be perfect, by the way. They just don't want to screw up, you know, so they, they try to be more perfect. But by wondering about the Bermuda shorts, um, the neurotic person is probably wanting to wear the shorts, but they can't be sure. So that's where the distrust comes in. So they, unless they could find some degree of certainty, they'll enter that party with trepidation. Uh, the person with self trust says, Yeah, even if people laugh at me, you yeah, know, okay, so I've been embarrassed before, I'll live. It's a courageous way of living. But, you know, the the neurotic person might say, Yeah, that's, I'm not that courageous. Yeah, but look what you're living with. You know, so that, what's the option? The option is staying in a withdrawn state and being anxious, being stressed. And I, and I also would like to, if I may, just mm-hmm. point out that that my whole theory, philosophy, whatever you want to call it, is not predicated on a separation of mind from body, quite the contrary. Uh, we are intimately connected to our chemistry, the, the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. What happens is that the stress of trying to control life is like a poke in the bottom of a bucket where those chemicals drip out of that bucket. Stress accumulates. The need to be in control causes stress, and then then the ongoing stress causes the depletion of those chemistries, chemicals. So it is a mind-body problem, and you must stop the leaking away of those, those chemicals. And that's why the habit has to be stopped. It can't be fed. We have to find a way to stop depleting our chemistry, because we do create imbalances, And those imbalances work in conjunction with those bad feelings and the struggles, and our job is to, what am I doing that's poking holes in the bottom of that bucket? How do I start plugging up that hole? And that's why we need to take control of the thoughts that we have, and we need to start restructuring the way we look at our own thoughts. And that's why I say active mind, passive mind. The passive mind's in the back seat all the time. And whatever those thoughts come, those child reflexive thoughts that distort our, our thinking and our perceptions, we just passively assume they're our thoughts and we just go with them. We don't realize we have a choice. These are imprints, they're habits. They're not necessarily our thoughts. They're the historical, habituated thoughts of that child reflex. And they'll go on willy-nilly forever unless we intervene.
0: Almost definitely, because because when I related that story to you, which I hadn't thought of for years, about coming around the corner and fearing the worst, Mm -hmm. I I I realize now that that is still so much of who I am and and how I think.
1: Oh yeah, the early imprints I had uh, when I grew up in the fifties. They didn't have penicillin at the time, and, and that or from sulfur drugs I had taken for some condition as a child, all my baby teeth were were kind of rotting. So they took me to a dentist who assured my parents that uh, I would be fine. They left my parents in the waiting room and they, they strapped me down and they pulled out all my baby teeth without any anesthesia. Wow. Um, And you know, it was an imprint to this day. You know that is so Im- embedded in my psyche. When I go to a dentist, I have to take a look physically and see if I'm three three inches above the seat or if I'm sitting in that seat relaxed. Because that reflex is so deep and so ingrained that I can neutralize it, and sometimes that's the best we can do with a traumatic experience. We can neutralize it and not have it affect us, or you know we can become its victim for whenever it, it shows its nasty head. Um, Another story, when I was a kid, uh, I was going by a grocery store, and there was half a lemon in the street. And I picked it up, and I brought it home to my mother. We were, I was only about—I was on a tricycle, so I don't know how old I was, but kids were allowed to roam then. And I brought the lemon home. I was so proud, and I gave it to my mother. And she looked at me, and she took me by the ear, and she dragged me up to the store. And she said, now you go in there and apologize for stealing that lemon. To this day, that's one of those hot spots where I have to neutralize it. Anything that's unfair just nothing, brings that right nothing back. Nothing you, you know?
0: can do about it. So yeah. just neutralize yeah, it.
1: Neutral. Well, with the traumatic imprints, you know, we, it's like PTSD. We can neutralize those feelings, but they create such an imprint in the brain that I suspect that. And I'll go on working on it. I mean, there may come a time where I'll I'll enjoy going to the dentist. I doubt it. (laughs) But I I don't let it affect me. I
0: I used to have a crush on my hygienist. So anyway, um, I would uh, like to bring us to the third and final of your Me 3. And this actually works out perfectly with what you were talking about. And that is become more aware of your anxiety triggers, doubts, fears, and negative thinking. So become aware of those triggers. Yeah, and Bec- Become aware if you're neutralizing them too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's it's what we were referring to with the traumatic imprints. But also uh, with anxiety and depression, we, we have certain triggers, uh, defensive triggers, whether it be uh, you know, just someone insulting us or the fear of w- whatever it is. Uh, always keep in mind those three words, doubts, fears, and negatives. Those are the tip-offs. Um, now, you don't have to go around looking in your mind all the time. Is that a, Am I doubting? Am I fearing? You know, what you need to do is when you feel that emotional struggle, that, that stomach clenching, uh, heat rising in your head, you know, when you feel emotional struggle, that's when the active mind needs to step in and take a look. Uh, what am I struggling with? Is it a doubt? Is it a fear? Is it a negative? Now, if so, then we are dealing with insecurity. The reflex or the habit of insecurity. And it is insecurity that, remember, we talked about facts versus emotional fictions. So insecurity will always throw at you the possibility of becoming emotionally upset and fearful and, most importantly, distrusting. So once you ferret out, okay, that's my insecurity. Now, here's the, the, the headline here you are not your insecurity your insecurity is an overlay on your personality it also was learned it is a habit so the more you develop that self-trust muscle the more insecurity and it's it's a uh, an inverse correlation the more insecurity becomes diminished you become more courageous you become more self-coach self-coaching and self-trusting and you tend to be able to be more present The only reason we can't be more present is when we're too distracted because insecurity says we can't be safe. If we're in the moment, we've got to be thinking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So in order to be more present, I think you need to be aware of your triggers. I think you need to be aware of when insecurity is ruling you and and you're not ruling it and take your life back from insecurity. The same as everything else we're talking about. Are you feeding it or are you starving it? Because insecurity is just a learned habit.
0: This has been an absolutely amazing talk. Uh, I've been talking with Dr. Joseph Luciani, uh, a practicing clinical psychologist and, and author of uh, some best-selling books, including Unlearning, Anxiety, and Depression, which is available on Amazon. Uh, selfcoaching.net. If you want to uh, learn more about what Dr. Dr. Joe does, about how he can help you, about uh, his other books as well, and most of those deal with, with self-coaching.
1: Self-coaching is, is really what all my books are about, uh, whether it's uh, weight loss or whether it's relationships, but it's all about self-coaching. It's uh, coaching with psychology, and we need to combine the two. It's very effective.
0: And once you are finished listening to this podcast, you can go and download his podcast. What's it called? Where can we find it?
1: Self. I guess you have to put the hyphen in. Self-coaching hyphen with Dr. Joe. All right. Thank you so much for this. It's been a pleasure. I, I had a good time. I, I hope I didn't go prattling on too much. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: that's my job, Dr. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> if you've done any sort of therapy when it comes to depression, anxiety, and your mental health, you know how important it is to be in the present, to think about what's really going on right now. But we quite often... Take that to mean thinking about, you know, what 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 sounds are you hearing right now? What are you feeling right now? It is another thing to be able to be in the present and in that present really feel your anxiety, really feel your depression. What does it feel like? Give it a name, label it. How did it start? Sometimes when I when I get into this this feeling that of doom, I, I start to say to myself, how where did this start? And I have to trace it back and trace it back and trace it back. And quite often it's something small. But once I've labeled it, it, it seems to file itself. So recognizing your depression, recognizing how it makes you feel, even if it's uncomfortable, try and just feel it. Let that feeling go through you. Just try and and, and be a third person. You know, go outside your body and, and just what does that feel like? And then how are you dealing with it? Are there a number of habits that you've picked up that you need to unlearn? Is it possible that you're making it worse with some of these bad habits? It's definitely something to keep an open mind about. Until next time. This is a happy molecule, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Please consider subscribing to this podcast and also check out the Happy Molecule Extra at thehappymolecule.blogspot.com. There you'll find a link to a video version of this episode, be able to join the conversation about mental health, learn about our Facebook Live show, and get a preview of upcoming episodes. You can email us at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. I'm Erin Davis, wishing you good mental health.